climate change is really immediate to um, people in their early 20s or late teens thinking about their own lives and thinking about what can I do with all the knowledge I'm acquiring, all the skills that I have to, um, to do something. Welcome to Environmental Insights, a podcast from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. I'm your host, Rob Stavens, a professor here at the Harvard Kennedy School and director of the program. Although most of my guests in this podcast series have been academic economists, I've also had the privilege and the pleasure of talking with some leading lights from other disciplines, including ones that seem adjacent to economics, such as political science and law, and also some that are certainly further afield, such as physics and chemistry. Today, we have an opportunity to delve into a realm that bridges the humanities, in particular history, and social science, in particular economics, by talking with a star in the field of economic history, Emma Rothschild, the Jeremy and Jane Knowles Professor of History at Harvard, where she is the director of the Joint Center for History and Economics, and a fellow at Cambridge University. Welcome, Emma, to Environmental Insights. A great pleasure to be here, Rob. Nice to talk to you. So in a few minutes, I'm eager to hear all about your explorations in the environmental realm, including, of course, your recent work on the economic history of methane emissions. But first, our listeners always find it interesting to know about my guest's background. So let's start with where did you grow up? I grew up in Cambridge, England. So the, the movers, when I came from there to Cambridge, Mass., were very amused. I imagine they were. And then what we would call in the United States primary school and high school, were those in Cambridge? I, by insistent pestering of my parents, I actually managed to go to a boarding school, uh-huh. which I sort of liked. I don't think the family liked liked the idea, but it was interesting. So I went to a boarding school in um, in the west of England, but left at 15, so that was an achievement. And, and then on to college, which was at Oxford? I went to Oxford, yes, yes. And there you did PPE, is that right? I did PPE, but when you start, said at the outset that most of your the people you talk to are economists, but sometimes you see other people, well, I had a sort of shudder because I did start as an economist some years ago. I actually came to MIT to do a PhD in economics. And um, I've always had a kind of feeling maybe one of these days I'll go back. So um, speaking of coming to MIT, that was as a Kennedy Scholar, which, is my, as I understand it, is essentially the reverse of a Rhodes Scholarship, British graduates coming to Harvard or MIT for a couple of years of study. Is that right? That's right. And and I came in the late 1960s, so not long after uh, President Kennedy's assassination, when the program was new. It was a very exciting time to be here. And it was it was interesting. The, the scholarships went to MIT as well as to Harvard because of the late Jerome Wiesner, uh, uh-huh. who was President Kennedy's science advisor, and he was a, 
important figure in, in setting up the program. Now, please forgive my ignorance, Emma. Does the Kennedy Scholar Program continue to, to exist today? Oh, my goodness, yes. There are outstanding Kennedy Scholars right there in the Kennedy School and in the law school. And they, they, they continue to find really fantastic young people who are, who are here at Harvard and at MIT. Well, that's great. Now I'll be sure to watch out for them. So you, you went back to Oxford for graduate school. Is that right? Uh, no, this is a complex story and the opposite of a model for the modern world. I, I came to heart to MIT for graduate school. Mm-hmm. Decided I didn't want to do the PhD in economics, mm-hmm. so I became a journalist. Mm-hmm. At that point, and I wrote a book. Mm-hmm. And at that point, I thought, well, I do want to do a PhD in economic history. Mm-hmm. So I had tea in New York with the late Eric Hobsbawm, who was teaching at London University. In fact, in the adult and adult education part of. London University. And I said, I want to come back to England and do a PhD in economic history with you. And he looked at me and he said, you're much too old and you've already written a book. So you, that's a silly idea. I was 26 at the time. Oh so my I, gosh. <laughs> so I was probably the last person hard um, on the MIT faculty who didn't have a PhD. So because I went back to MIT in 1978 and was there on the faculty for 10 years before being back again to England. So your first academic position then was Professor of Humanities at MIT, is that correct? Well, initially in humanities and then in the science, technology, and society. I see. And then you had many other positions uh, over a period of years, and then visiting Professor of History at Harvard which evolved, I believe, in 2008 into the position you now hold, the Jeremy and Jean Knowles Professor of History. Have I got that straight, at least? Uh, that's right. Well, 2007, I came uh, full okay. time to Harvard. Yeah. I actually didn't have many positions between um, uh, MIT and Harvard. But, uh, yeah. but here you are now. Here I am, here I am now. So with that, let's turn to your scholarly work in history, in particular economic history, a question I always ask my guests, although I know it's like asking one to identify a favorite child, is what's the one research publication of yours, which in your case might be a book, an article, or or something else, or an endowed lecture, perhaps, that you gave somewhere, um, the one that you're most proud of? What What would that be, Emma? I'm very fond of an article called An An Alarming Commercial Crisis in 18th Century Angoulême, which was, uh, it sort of turned into my most recent book called An Infinite History. But it was was the the first time I really tried to use micro-history, in this case of of a small financial crisis involving high interest rates and allegations of usury and tried to take that as the basis for telling a much larger story about the economic history of France. And what what was the smaller story, the actual uh, event that you described there? After the Seven Years' War, there were a lot of of highly indebted um, borrowers, some of them military 
contractors. Mm-hmm. And they alleged that their creditors were charging usurious rates of interest. And in fact, these were standard rates of interest, but by un, unenforced old religious res- regulations, they could be um, uh, accused of usury. And it was a, a celebrated case which led to blackmail and allegations of, of um, attempted murder. It became a kind of na- nationwide and to some extent Europe-wide cause célèbre and was also the occasion for one of the most important works of economic theory on the deregulation of financial markets. And it, the, it's always been seen as just this sort of bizarre little local episode which set off so many important mm-hmm. issues in economic policy. So I got interested in what had actually happened and who these people were. They were sometimes given only initials. I wanted to find out who they were and where they lived and why it really happened. And it was just fascinating. So that I, I think I, I, I like to do micro, macro history. Mm-hmm. And that first time I really sort of tried to do it in a in a very detailed way. That's fascinating. So um, let, let's move fast forward and turn to environment and climate change. Uh, I actually don't know. How is it that you became interested and involved in this sphere? Well, my my first book, the the book that stopped me from getting a PhD in Hobbesbaum's view, was about <laughs> the history of the um, American automobile industry. It yes. was it was actually published exactly fifty years ago. You probably know that in the early nineteen seventies there was major national concern about the environmental consequences of a system of transport um, uh, that mm-hmm. was based on on private vehicle traffic. So the book was substantially about that. It wasn't about climate change, which while kind of visionary thinkers were talking quite a bit about climate change um, in the early 70s, I I wasn't in this book. Mm -hmm. So um, really, I never stopped being interested. I did a lot of writing in the New York Review of Books in the uh, 1970s and 1980s on Mm -hmm. the energy crisis and environmental questions. I then had a period as a sort of very minor policymaker as a member of the Royal Commission on Environmental Pollution in the UK. So, so it's really been a, a, a continuing interest throughout um, my, my work. And I must say, I, one of the things that makes me very optimistic now about my field is that so many people interested in economic history are now seeing that the environment and climate is part of economic history and vice versa. Environmental historians are seeing that they have to think about how the economy evolves. You know, I, I can't help but mention that, um, so when I did my PhD in the Harvard Economics Department, graduated, I guess, in 1988, and one of the requirements at the time was to do two one-semester courses uh, in economic history and or the history of economic thought. And I did my two courses in economic history with Jeff Williamson, which turned out, although 
you know, it wasn't environmental economics, which is what I was geared towards. Those turned out to be two of the most important courses that I ever took because they were essentially laboratories of economic research. It was, the, it was the place where I learned how to do economic research, which otherwise is not taught per se. Um, I think, unfortunately, and maybe I'm wrong about this, Emma, that requirement in the economics department uh, no longer exists, but I don't know. It, 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 you're absolutely right, but what you say is so interesting. And I, I do think that young economists, the sort of people who are looking for jobs right now, are in a way, voting with their feet, because I've been extremely struck by how many of the top candidates Mm -hmm. this year actually have either environmental papers, climate papers, or history papers as part of their portfolios, and in many cases, both, actually. I just think the um, PhD students are are kind of understanding this much faster than, um, than... perhaps um, the, the the educational establishment. And I, I don't know, may, may, perhaps there's also a hopeful sign in Claudia Goldin's very recent Nobel Prize. Because yes. Her important work really is about the history of women in economic life. And she has occasionally, almost single-handedly, um, held up economic history in the Harvard Econ Department. So, so I'm very, very upbeat about the extent to which this is going to be important in coming years. Yes, she came to Harvard as an economic historian, as I recall. Her wonderful papers that are cited by the Nobel Committee are an example of exactly what you described, sort of Mm -hmm. learning to do economic research by using data, thinking about evidence, finding new kinds of evidence, and, and doing economics out of that. Now, something that really struck me, Emma, I don't know if it was in your CV or biography or something I was reading about you, was that under the umbrella of a project visualizing climate and loss, you have written about Adam Smith in that regard. Uh, Do I have that straight? Um, And if so, can you say a few words about it? I wrote a book about... uh mostly about Adam Smith um, uh, about now almost 20 years ago. And I've, I've um, continued to be very interested in, in him. This year is the 300th anniversary of his birth. Mm-hmm. I'm very struck by the extent to which commentary on Smith now says something that seemed to me to be so weird, namely Adam Smith is to blame for global climate change. It's, it's sometimes phrased in a you know, more general way, like Smith is responsible for, for worldwide capitalism or worldwide materialism, and that in turn is responsible for um, climate change. Now, this is a level of generality that I'm not at all comfortable with, but more specifically, um, I want. I, I became interested in the question. Well, did he say anything that could conceivably have um, led people to think this? And what did he, to the extent that we can discern this, think about the the, the origins of the industrial revolution, 
in relation to a sort of more plausible causal story about how how industrial growth of the late 18th century actually did lead to contemporary climate change. So the the, the short essays are about that. What would Adam thought about climate change? What did he say about externalities? What did he say about the distant effects of um, of our our own actions? In this is in his work on moral philosophy. So it was really fun to to investigate this empirical story. So I recently read a biography of Adam Smith, but because I tend to read nowadays on a Kindle. I never know, I always forget, the title of the book and the author of the book, because I don't see it. Um, was there a recent biography of Smith that came out? There's a huge Smith industry. Yes. Um, <laughs> and the 300th anniversary has been just wild around the world. But uh, I, I'm, I'm sorry, I should, I'm sure there are books by friends and colleagues of mine that I should be mentioning. But uh, um, there's a very good sort of classic biography by Nicholas Philipson, but that's a few years old. Well, I'll try to dig them up and, and include some links here, in addition, obviously, to links to your your own work and, and your projects. Speaking of your projects, I want to turn to Methane in 1800 Histories which would be, that's a surprising title for a project, I bet, to our listeners. So can you tell us about that? Your, your listeners undoubtedly know that methane is an extremely potent greenhouse gas, and it's been described in a lot of policy documents as a low-hanging fruit for, um, for climate policy. Uh, the, this project came about really opportunistically when I saw a, um, a very good article that was the cover piece in, in Science a little over a year ago by some French climate scientists who were actually able to map almost 1,800 sites of ultra- methane emissions worldwide. A lot of this has been done for the US and for other countries, but they, they were able to, using um, satellite data, to, to give a literally worldwide overview of where the largest methane emitters were. So as someone who's interested in the micro and the macro, I became intrigued by the question, well, what's happening in each of these apparently disparate locations? Why are there so many methane emissions in this particular spot in mm-hmm. Kazakhstan or in um, uh, somewhere in the Central Valley in California? And I, I actually sort of cold, cold called or cold got in touch with um, the French scientists um, mm-hmm. They sent me their data, and I literally, at sitting at home here in Cambridge, Mass, started crunching it a bit myself, and and became more and more intrigued. And this turned into a collaborative project. We've done a big visualization of all the sites, and the aspiration is that um, young historians, young economists will actually investigate each of these sites and thereby contribute to an understanding of the history of why climate change is happening 
and of course thereby in turn start to think in a in a practical and local way about what can be done about the sites and mm-hmm. we got started with this as a um as a investigation in really in economic history in understanding and thanks in large part to the connection with with salata we've been taking much more seriously the possibility that understanding these local histories can can in fact be helpful for policy so through the salata connections i'm now in touch with um with uh, people for example in southwest pennsylvania who are trying to do something about methane emissions there we, this is a um very much a global project we have a lot of contacts in bangladesh um uh with people who are working both on the um our micro histories and with policy makers and i'm happy to say that our next the next micro history we're going to be uploading is actually about one of the methane emission sites in in ukraine written mm-hmm. by young ukrainian historian who's who's very involved with projects for environmental reconstruction once the tragic war there comes to an end so this has been something that's been really interesting in terms of the extent to which it has captured students imagination i teach a course here at harvard called writing histories of climate change mm-hmm. one of the exercises in that class um was to pick one of the sites on the map and write your own micro history and some of the students did just wonderful um um pieces and one of the tasks for um for the next couple of months is to go go back to those students and um help them with editing the pieces add more references and then upload those mm-hmm. um, um that those to the, the website you know i think it it's it's captured people's imagination because it seems doable and part of what's so difficult about climate change is that the instruments namely global policy change seems so beyond um mm-hmm. the, the 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 capacity of individuals or groups to affect and it's related really to the 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 problem with adam smith's reputation after 300 years if if the problem that has caused climate change is materialism or capitalism then what can one do about it and now as part of the harvard slotta institute's uh university wide initiative on reducing global methane emissions you're co-leading with steve wolfsey professor of atmospheric and environmental science at harvard a project on using remote sensing data to inform micro histories of methane release sites which is very exciting um can you say a few words about that well that's this has been my favorite collaboration since i arrived at Harvard all those years ago it's been just great to work with Steve and his team we have these kind of cluster meetings where either some young economists and historians trapes over to his lab mm-hmm. and talk and talk and talk or sometimes his his team come over to 
um, to the social science building and we sit in the basement and talk and talk and talk. And it's, um, it's spun off a number of collaborations which um, Steve and I you know, aren't even directly involved with. So, so um, I think this is extremely promising. To give you one example, there was a particular location in Colorado which uh, Steve's airplane was going to be flying over. They were very concerned because of the methane emissions. And um, it came up that we had a student who was not far from that site in Colorado. He's a, I mean, he recently graduated from Harvard College. He's pre-med. And so I got in touch with him and asked, um, you don't want to take a few days and go to X site and look around while while Professor Woffsey's airplane is looking from above. And yes, he wanted to do it. So, and he wrote, you know, fantastic piece. So this is the sort of collaboration that we hope is going to be possible, including on a international scale when the the methane satellite is launched early in 2024. So it is indeed, you know, very exciting. And I'm really struck by uh, the number of students with whom you're working, both graduate students and Harvard College undergraduate students. Um, my sense is that there's just greatly increased interest among students in climate change and sustainability more broadly. And I, I assume you would say that you have personally experienced that? Oh, to a, to a, um, to an extraordinary extent. I mean, this this new course, Writing Histories of Climate Change, was, I think, much the most intense teaching experience I've had at Harvard because climate change is really immediate to um, people in their early 20s or late teens thinking about their own lives and thinking about what can I do with all the knowledge I'm acquiring, all the skills that I have, to um to do something and you know there the, the, the were students from um really right across the range of disciplines who took this course i mean we we we, we certainly had someone who was working on polar um cores we had a a, a brilliant young uh, biologist who's now writing a book about microbes in um and climate change coming out of work she did in in the class, we we had um, poets, we had uh, people interested in policy in Argentina. I mean, it was it was fantastic, and uh, the the students who worked as course assistants on this class. I don't think the faculty involved would have been so bold, but they um, think we should try to have a a, a college wide um, climate histories class. So let's see, we're going to be developing it on a larger scale next year. And Professor Victor Siao from the History of Science Department, who's a wonderful economic and environmental historian of, of coal mining in China, um, is, is, is teaching it, uh, taught it with me and will continue to teach. And yes. Professor David Yang, who's the co-director of, um, of our centre and is a really interesting professor of um, in the econ department whose own work uses historical data very interestingly even though he wouldn't 
think of himself as an economic historian. Well, that's very exciting. And so uh, let me bring things to a close just by saying thank you so much, Emma, for having taken time to join us today. It was a real pleasure, Rob. Look forward to seeing you around. Our guest today has been Emma Rothschild, the Jeremy and Jane Knowles Professor of History at Harvard University. Please join us again for the next episode of Environmental Insights, Conversations on Policy and Practice from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. I'm your host, Rob Stevens. Thanks for listening. Environmental Insights is a production from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. For more information on our research, events, and programming, visit our website, www.heap.hks.harvard.edu.